I live in Europe, and it's incredibly easy to travel here. By bus, train or plane, I can be in any other European country in a matter of hours, for pretty cheap. But while I'm in other countries, I still want to check my emails, check my YouTube analytics and all that fun stuff. Well, by using Surfshark VPN, I changed my location to France using one of their 3200 plus servers, and I'm no longer annoyed by thousands of emails from Google freaking out saying, Oh my god, there's a computer in Spain trying to hack you! There isn't Google. It's me. And thanks to Surfshark, I'm no longer bothered by these annoying messages. Use the link in the description or episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan, and log into all your accounts anywhere with zero hassle and no annoying emails. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get Incogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello, and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac, and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. I forgot to record this very start bit when I first recorded the chapter, so um, here's a picture of my face to go with the voice, I don't know. Uh, we're currently continuing with One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest by Ken Kessie, and we are on the final chapter of part one. Let's dive in. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. I know how they work it. The fog machine. We had a whole platoon used to operate fog machines around airfields overseas. Whenever intelligence figured there might be a bombing attack, or if the generals had something secret they wanted to pull, out of sight, it's so good that even the spies on the base couldn't see what went on, they fogged the field. It's a simple rig. You had an ordinary compressor, sucks water out of one tank and a special oil out of the other tank, and compresses them together. And from the black stem at the end of the machine blooms a white cloud of fog that can cover the whole airfield in 90 seconds. The first thing I saw when I landed in Europe was the fog those machines make. There were some interceptors close after our transport, and as soon as it hit ground, the fog crew started up the machines. We could look out of the transport's round, scratched windows and watch the jeeps draw the machines up close to the plane and watch the fog boil out till it rolled across the field and stuck against the windows like wet cotton. You found your way off the plane by following a little referee's horn the lieutenant kept blowing. It sounded like a goose honking. Soon as you were out of the hatch, you couldn't see no more than maybe three feet in any direction. You felt like you were out on the airfield all by yourself. You were safe from the enemy, but you were awfully alone. 
Sounds died and dissolved after a few yards, and you couldn't hear any of the rest of your crew. Nothing but that little horn squeaking and honking out of a soft, furry whiteness so thick that your body just faded into white below the belt. Other than that brown shirt and breast buckle, you couldn't see nothing but white. Like, from the waist down, you were being dissolved by the fog, too. And then some guy, wandering, as lost as you, would all of a sudden be right before your eyes, his face bigger and clearer than you ever saw a man's face before in your life. Your eyes working so hard to see in that fog that when something did come into sight, every detail was ten times clearer as usual. So clear, both you had to look away. When a man showed up, you didn't want to look at his face, and he didn't want to look at yours, because it's painful to see somebody so clear that it's like looking inside of him. But then, neither did you want to look away and lose him completely. You had a choice. You could either strain and look at things that appeared in front of you in the fog, painful as it might be, or you could relax and lose yourself. When they first used that fog machine on the ward, one they bought from Army Surplus, and hid in the vents in the new place before he moved in, I kept looking at anything that appeared out of the fog as long and as hard as I could to keep track of it, just like I used to when they fogged up the airfields in Europe. Nobody be blowing a horn to show the way. There was no rope to hold to, so fixing my eyes on something was the only way I kept from getting lost. Sometimes I got lost in any way, got in too deep trying to hide, and every time I did, it seemed like I always turned up at that same place, at that same metal door with a row of rivets like eyes and no number. Just like the room behind the door drew me to it, no matter how hard I tried to stay away. Just like the current generated by the fiends in that room was conducted in a beam along the fog and pulled me back along it like a robot. I'd wander for days in the fog, scared I'd never see another thing. Then there'd be that door, opening to show me the mattress padding on the other side to stop out the sounds. The men, standing in a line, like zombies, among shiny copper wires and tubes pulsing light, and the bright scrape of arcing electricity. I take my place in line and wait my turn at the table. The table, shaped like a cross, with shadows of a thousand murdered men printed on it. Silhouette wrists and ankles running under leather straps, sweated green with use. A silhouette neck and head running up to a silver band that goes across the forehead. And a technician at the controls beside the table, looking up from his dials and down the line and pointing at me with a rubber glove. Wait. I know that bastard there. Better rabbit punch him, or call for some help or something. He's an awful case for thrashing about. So I used to try not to get in too deep, for fear I'd get lost and turn up at the shock shop door. I looked hard at anything that came into sight, and hung on like a man in a blizzard hangs on a fence rail. But they kept making the fog thicker and thicker, and it seems to me that no matter how hard I tried, two or three times a month, I found myself with that door opening in front of me to the acid smell of sparks and ozone. In spite of all I could do, it was getting tough to keep from getting lost. Then I discovered something. I don't have to end up at that door if I stay still when the fog comes over me and just keep quiet. The trouble was, I've been finding that door my own self because I got scared of being lost so long 
and went hollering so they could track me. In a way, I was hollering for them to track me. I'd figured that anything was better than being lost for good. Even the shock shop. Now, I don't know. Being lost isn't so bad. All this morning, I'd been waiting for them to fog us in again. The last few days, they'd been doing it more and more. It's my idea that they're doing it on account of McMurphy. They haven't got him fixed with the controls yet, and they're trying to catch him off guard. They can see he's due to be a problem. A half dozen times already, he's already roused Cheswick and Harding, and some of the others, to where it looked like they might actually stand up to one of the black boys. But always, just at the time it looked like the patient might be helped, the fog would start, like it's starting now. I heard the compressor start pumping in the grill a few minutes back, just as the guys went to moving tables out of the day room for a therapeutic meeting. And already the mist is oozing across the floor, so thick my pant legs are wet. I'm cleaning the window in the door of the glass station, and I hear the big nurse pick up the phone and call the doctor to tell him that we're about ready for the meeting, and tell him perhaps he'd best keep an hour free this afternoon for a staff meeting. The reason being, she tells him, I think it's past time to have a discussion on the subject of patient Randall McMurphy, and whether he should be on this ward or not. She listens a minute and tells him, I don't think it's wise to let him go on upsetting the patients the way he has been the last few days. That's why she's fogging the ward for the meeting. She don't usually do that. But now she's going to do something with McMurphy today. Probably ship him to Disturbed. I put down my window rag and go to my chair at the end of the line of chronics. Barely able to see the guys getting into the chairs and the doctor coming through the door, wiping his glasses like he thinks the blurred look comes from the steamed lenses instead of the fog. It's rolling in thicker than I ever seen it before. I can hear them out there, trying to go on with the meeting, talking some nonsense about Billy Bibbit's stutter and how it came about. The words come to me like through water it's so thick. In fact, it's so much like water that it floats me right up out of my chair, and I don't know which end is up for a while. Floating makes me a little sick in the stomach at first. I can't see a thing. I never had it so thick that it floated me like this. The words get dim and loud, off and on as I float around. But as loud as they get, loud enough sometimes to know I'm right next to the guy that's talking, I still can't see a thing. I recognize Billy's voice, starting worse than ever because he's nervous. F-f-flunked out of college because I quit R-O-T-C. I couldn't take it. Whenever the officer in charge would call class roll, call Bibbit, I couldn't answer. You were s- s- supposed to say he, he, he. He's choking on the word, like he's got a bone in his throat. I hear him swallow and start again. <clears throat> you were supposed to say here, sir, and I never c- 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 could get it out. His voice gets dim. Then the big nurse's voice comes cutting from the left. Can you recall, Billy, when you first had speech trouble? When did you first stutter? 
Do you remember? I can't tell. Is he laughing or what? First stutter. The first word I said, I stuttered. Mama. Then the talking fades out altogether. I never knew that to happen before. Maybe Billy's hid himself in the fog too. Maybe all the guys, finally and forever, crowded back into the fog. A chair and me float past each other. It's the first thing I've seen. It comes sifting out of the fog to my right, and for a second, it's right beside my face, just out of my reach. I've been accustomed, of late, to just let things alone when they appear in the fog. Sit still and not try to hang on. But this time, I'm scared. The way I used to be scared. I try, with all I got, to pull myself over to the chair and get a hold of it. But there's nothing to brace against, and all I can do is thrash in the air. All I can do is watch the chair come clear, clearer than ever before, to where I can even make out the fingerprints where a worker touched the varnish before it was dry, looming out for a few seconds, then fading on off again. I'd never seen it where things floated around this way. I'd never seen it this thick before, thick to where I can't get down to the floor and get my feet if I wanted to and walk around. That's why I'm so scared. I feel like I'm going to float off someplace for good this time. I see a chronic, float into sight a little below me. It's old Colonel Madison, reading from the wrinkled scripture of that long, yellow hand. I look close at him, because I figure it's the last time I'll ever see him. His face is enormous. Almost more than I can bear. Every hair and wrinkle of him is big, as though I was looking at him through one of those microscopes. I see him, so clear. I see his whole life. The face is 60 years of Southwest Army camps, rutted by iron-rimmed caisson wheels, worn to the bone by thousands of feet on two-day marches. He holds out that long hand and brings it up in front of his eyes and squints into it, brings up his other hand and underlines the words with a finger, wooden and varnished, the color of a gunstock by nicotine. The voice is deep and slow and patient, and I see the words come out of the dark and heavy over his brittle lips when he reads. No, the flag is America. America is the plum, the peach, the watermelon. America is the gumdrop, the pumpkin seed. America is television. It's true. It's all wrote down on that yellow hand. I can read it along with him myself. Now, the cross is Mexico. He looks up to see if I'm paying attention, and when he sees I am, he smiles at me and goes on. Mexico is the walnut, the hazelnut, the acorn. Mexico is the rainbow. The rainbow is wooden. Mexico is wooden. I can see what he's driving at. He's been saying this sort of thing for the whole six years he's been here, but I never paid him any mind.
figured he was no more than a talking statue. A thing made out of bone, an arthritis, rambling on and on with these goofy definitions of his that didn't make a lick of sense. Now, at last, I see what he's saying. I'm trying to hold him for one last look to remember him. And that's what makes me look hard enough to understand. He pauses and peers up at me again to make sure I'm getting it. And I want to yell out to him, Yes, I see. Mexico is like a walnut. It's brown and hard, and you feel it with your eye. And it feels like a walnut. You're making sense, old man. A sense of your own. You're not crazy, the way they think. Yes, I see. But the fox clocked up my throat to where I can't make a sound. As he sifts away, I see him bend back over that hand. Now, the green sheep is Canada. Canada is the fir tree. The wheat field. The calendar. I strain to see him drifting away. I strain so hard my eyes ache and I have to close them. And when I open them again, the colonel is gone. I'm floating by myself again, more lost than ever. This time I tell myself I'm going for good. There's old Pete, face like a searchlight. He's 50 yards off to my left, but I can see him plain as though there wasn't any fog at all. Or maybe he's up right close and real small. I can't be sure. He tells me once about how tired he is. And just his saying it makes me see his whole life on the railroad. See him working to figure out how to read a watch. Breaking a sweat while he tries to get the right button in the right hole of his railroad overalls. Doing his absolute damnedest to keep up with a job that comes so easy to the others that they can sit back in a chair, padded with cardboard, and read mystery stories and girly books. Not that he really ever figured to keep up. He knew from the start he couldn't do that. But he had to try to keep up, just to keep him in sight. So for 40 years, he was able to live, if not right in the world of men, at least on the edge of it. I can see all that and be hurt by it. The way I was hurt by seeing things in the army, in the war. The way I was hurt seeing what happened to Papa and the tribe. I thought I'd got over seeing those things and fretting over them. There's no sense in it. There's nothing to be done. I'm tired, is what he says. I know you're tired, Pete, but I can't do you no good fretting about it. You know I can't. Pete floats on the way of the old colonel. Here comes Billy Bibbit, the way Pete come by. I know Billy can't be more than a few feet away, but he's so tiny. He looks like he's a mile off. His face is out to me like the face of a beggar, needing so much more than anyone can give. His mouth works like a little doll's mouth. And even when I proposed, I flubbed it. I said, uh, uh, honey, will you m m m m m m to the girl broke out l- laughing. Nurse's voice. I can see where it comes from. Your mother has spoken to me about this girl, Billy. Apparently, she was quite beneath you. What would you speculate it was about her that frightened you so, Billy? 
I was in love with her. I can't do nothing for you either, Billy. You know that. None of us can. You've got to understand that as soon as a man goes to help somebody, he leaves himself wide open. He has to be cagey, Billy. You should know that as well as anyone. What could I do? I can't fix your stuttering. I can't wipe the razor blade scars off your wrists or the cigarette burns off your hands. I can't give you a new mother. And as far as the nurse is writing you like this, rubbing your nose in your weakness till what little dignity you got left is gone and you shrink up to nothing from humiliation. I can't do anything about that either. At Anzio, I saw a buddy of mine tied to a tree 50 yards from me, screaming for water, his face blistered in the sun. They wanted me to go out and help him. And that have cut me in half from the farmhouse over there. Put your face away, Billy. And I kept filing past. It's like each face was a sign, like one of those I'm blind signed the Dago accordion players in Portland hung around their necks. Only these signs say, I'm tired, or I'm scared, or I'm dying of a bum liver, or I'm all bound up with machinery, and people pushing me all the time. I can read all the signs. It don't make any difference how little the print gets. Some of the faces are looking round at one another. I could read the other fellows, if they would. But what's the sense? The faces blow past in the fog like confetti. I'm further off than I've ever been. This is what it's like to be dead. I guess this is what it's like to be a vegetable. You lose yourself in the fog. You don't move. They feed your body till it finally stops eating. Then they burn it. It's not so bad. There's no pain. I don't feel much of anything, other than a touch of chill I figure will pass in time. I see my commanding officer, pinning notices to the bulletin board. But where to where today? I see the U.S. Department of Interior bearing down on our little tribe with a gravel-crushing machine. I see Papa come loping out of a draw and slope up to try and take aim at a big six-point buck springing off through the cedars. Shot out of shot puffs out of the barrel, knocking dust all around the buck. I come out of the draw behind Papa and bring the buck down with my second shot just as it starts climbing the rim rock. I grin at Papa. I never knew you to miss a shot like that before, Papa. Eyes gone, boy. Can't hold a bead. Size on my gun just now was shaking like a dog shitting peach pits. Papa, I'm telling you, that cactus moon of Sid's is going to make you old before your time. A man drinks that cactus moon of Sid's, boy. He's already old before his time. Let's go gut that animal out before the flies blow him. That's not even happening now, you see. There's nothing you can do about a happening out of the past like that. Look there, my man. I hear whispers. Black boys. Look there, that old fellow Bloom stepped off to sleep. That's right, Chief Brome. That's right. You sleep and keep out of trouble, yes? I'm not cold anymore. I think I've about made it. I'm off to where the cold can't reach me. I can stay off here for good. I'm not scared anymore. 
they can't reach me. Just the worlds reach me, and those fading. Well, inasmuch as Billy has decided to walk out of the discussion, does anybody else have a problem to bring before the group? As a matter of fact, ma'am, there does happen to be something. That's McMurphy. He's far away. He's still trying to pull people out of the fog. Why don't he leave me be? Remember the vote we had a day or so back about the TV time? Well, today's Friday, and I thought I might bring it up again, just to see if anybody else has picked up a little guts. Mr. McMurphy, the purpose of this meeting is therapy. Group therapy. And I'm not sure these petty grievances... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Hell with that. We've heard it before. Me and some of the rest of the guys decided... One moment, Mr. McMurphy. Let me pose a question to the group. Do any of you feel that Mr. McMurphy is perhaps imposing his personal desires on some of you too much? I've been thinking you might be happier if he were moved to a different ward. Nobody says anything for a minute. Then someone says, let him vote, why don't you? Why you want to ship him to disturb just for bringing up a vote? What's so wrong with changing time? Why, Mr. Scanlon, as I recall, you refused to eat for three days till we allowed you to turn the set on at six instead of 6.30. A man needs to see the world news, don't he? God, they could have bombed Washington. It'd be a week before we heard. Yes, and... How do you feel about relinquishing your world news to watch a bunch of men play baseball? No, I suppose not. Well, what the dickens? I don't suppose they'll bomb us this week. Let's let him have the vote, Miss Ratchet. Very well. But I think this is ample evidence of how much he is upsetting some of you patients. What is it you're proposing, Mr. McMurphy? I'm proposing a revote. I'm watching the TV in the afternoon. You're certain one more vote will satisfy you? We have more important things. It'll satisfy me. I'd just kind of like to see which of the birds have any guts, and which don't. It's that kind of talk, Mr. Spivvy, that makes me wonder if the patients would be more content if Mr. McMurphy were moved. Let him have the vote, why don't you? Certainly, Mr. Cheswick. A vote is now before the group. Will a show of hands be adequate, Mr. McMurphy? Or are you going to insist on a secret ballot? I want to see the hands that don't go up, too. Everyone in favour of changing the television time to the afternoon raises hand. The first hand that comes up, I can tell, is McMurphy's, because the bandage where the control panel cut into him when he tried to lift it. And then off down the slope, I see them. Other hands coming up out of the fog. It's like... That big red hand of McMurphy's is reaching into the fog and dropping down and dragging men up by their hands, dragging them, blinking into the open. First one, then another, then the next, right on down the line of acutes, dragging them out of the fog till there they stand, all twenty of them, raising not just for watching TV, but against the big nurse, against her trying to send McMurphy to Disturbed, against the way she talked and acted, and beat them down for years. Nobody says anything.
I can feel how stunned everybody is. The patients, as well as the staff. The nurse can't figure what happened. Yesterday, before he tried lifting that panel, there wasn't but four or five men might have voted. But when she talks, she don't let it show in her voice how surprised she is. I only count twenty, Mr. McMurphy. Twenty? Well, why not? Twenty is all of us there. His voice hangs as he realizes what she means. Now, now hold on just a goddamn minute, lady. I'm afraid the vote is defeated. Hold on just for one goddamn minute. There are 40 patients on the ward, Mr. McMurphy. 40 patients and only 20 voted. You must have a majority to change the ward policy. I'm afraid the vote is closed. The hands are coming down across the room. The guys know they're whipped. Are trying to slip back into the safety of the fog. McMurphy is on his feet. Well, I'll be a so bit. You mean to tell me that's how you gonna pull it? Count the votes of those birds over there, too. Didn't you explain the voting procedure to him, Doctor? I'm afraid a majority is called for, McMurphy. She's right, I'm afraid. She's right. She's right. A majority. A majority, Mr. McMurphy. It's in the ward constitution. And I suppose the way to change the god constitution is with a majority vote. Sure, of all the chicken sh- things I ever seen, this, by God, takes the cake. I'm sorry, Mr. McMurphy, but you will find it written in the policy if you'd care for me to... So this is how you work, this democratic bullshit. Hell's bells. You seem upset, Mr. McMurphy. Doesn't he seem upset, Doctor? I want you to note this. Don't give me that noise, lady. When a guy's getting screwed, he's got the right to holler. And we've been damn well screwed. Perhaps, Doctor, in view of the patient's condition, we should bring this meeting to a close early today. Wait, wait a minute. Let me talk to some of those old guys. The vote is closed, Mr. McMurphy. Let me talk to him. He's coming across the day room at us. He gets bigger and bigger, and he's burning red in the face. He reaches into the fog and tries to drag Ruckley to the surface because Ruckley's the youngest. What about you, buddy? You want to watch the World Series? Baseball? Baseball games? Just raise that hand up there. F*** the wife. All right, forget it. You, partner? How about you? What's your name? Ellis? What do you say, Ellis? It's watching the ball game on TV. Just raise your hand. Ellis's hands are nailed to the wall. Can't be counted as a vote. I said, the voting is closed, Mr. McMurphy. You're just making a spectacle of yourself. He don't pay any attention to her. He comes on, down the line of chronics. Come on, come on, just one vote from you birds. Just raise a hand. Show you can still do it. I'm tired, says Pete, and wags his head. The night is... The Pacific Ocean. The colonel is reading off his hand. Can't be bothered with voting. Warn you guys, for crying out loud. This is where you get the edge, don't you see? 
we have to do this. Or we're whipped. Don't one of you chucks know what I'm talking about enough to give us a hand? You, Gabriel, George. No? You, Chief. What about you? He's standing over me in the mist. Why won't he leave me be? Chief, you're our last bet. The big nurse is folding her papers. The other nurses are standing up around her. She finally gets to her feet. The meeting is adjourned, then, I hear her say, and I'd like to see the staff down in the staff room in about an hour. So, if there's nothing else, it's too late to stop it now. McMurphy did something to it that first day. Put some kind of hex on it with his hand so it won't act like I order it. There's no sense in it. Any fool can see. I wouldn't do it on my own. Just by the way the nurse is staring at me, with a mouth empty of words, I can see I'm in for trouble. But I can't stop it. McMurphy's got hidden wires hooked to it, lifting it slow just to get me out of the fog and into the open, where I'm fair game. He's doing it. Wires. No. That's not the truth. I lifted it. Myself. McMurphy whoops and drags me standing, pounding my back. Twenty-one. The chief's vote makes it twenty-one. And by God, if that ain't a majority, I'll eat my hat. Yippee! Cheswick yells. The other accused are coming across toward me. The meeting was closed, she says. Her smile is still there, but the back of her neck, as she walks out of the day room and into the nurse's station, is red and swelling like she'll blow apart any second. But she don't blow up. Not right off. Not until about an hour later. Behind the glass, her smile is twisted and clear, like we'd never seen it before. She just sits, and I can see her shoulders rise and fall as she breathes. McMurphy looks up at the clock, and he says it's time for the game. He's over by the drinking fountain, with some of the other acutes, down on his knees, scouring off the baseboard. I'm sweeping out the broom closet for the tenth time that day. Scanlon and Harding, they got the buffer going up and down the hall, polishing the new wax into shining figure eights. McMurphy says again that he guesses it must be time for the game, and he stands up, leaves the scouring rag where it lies. Nobody else stops work. McMurphy walks past the window where she's glaring out at him and grins at her, like he knows he's got her whipped now. When he tips his head back and winks at her, she gives that little sideways jerk of her head. Everybody keeps on what he's doing, but they all watch out of the corner of their eyes while he drags his armchair out in front of the TV set, then switches on the set and sits down. A pitcher swirls onto the screen of a parrot out on the baseball field, singing razor blade songs. McMurphy gets up and turns up the sound to drown out the music coming from the speaker in the ceiling, and drags another chair in front of him and sits down and crosses his feet on the chair and leans back and lights a cigarette. He scratches his belly and yawns. Hoo-wee, man! All I need now is a can of beer and a red hop. We can see the nurse's face get red and her mouth work as she stares at him. She looks around for a second and sees everybody watching what she's going to do. 
even the black boys and the little nurses sneaking looks at her. And the residents begin to drift in for the staff meeting. They're watching. Her mouth clamps shut. She looks back at McMurphy and waits till the Razor Blade song is finished, and then gets up and goes to the steel door where the controls are, and she flips a switch, and the TV picture swirls back into the gray. Nothing is left on the screen but a little eye of light beating right down on McMurphy, sitting there. That eye don't faze him a bit. To tell the truth, he don't even let on he knows the picture's turned off. He puts a cigarette between his teeth and pushes his cap forward in his red hair till he has to lean back to see out from under the brim. And sits that way, with his hands crossed behind his head and his feet stuck out in a chair, smoking a cigarette sticking out from under his hat brim, watching the TV screen. The nurse stands this as long as she can. Then she comes to the door of the nurse's station and calls across to him that he'd better help the men with the housework. He ignores her. I said, Mr. McMurphy, that you are supposed to be working during these hours. Her voice has a tight whine, like an electric saw ripping through pine. Mr. McMurphy, I'm warning you. Everybody stopped what he's doing. She looks around her, then takes a step out of the nurse's station towards McMurphy. You're committed, you realize. You are under the jurisdiction of me, the staff. She's holding up a fist, all those red-orange fingernails burning into her palm. Under jurisdiction and control. Harding shuts off the buffer and leaves it in the hall. And goes, pulls up a chair alongside McMurphy, and sits down and lights him a cigarette, too. Mr. Harding, you return to your scheduled duties! I think her voice sounds like it hit a nail, and this strikes me so funny I almost laugh. Mr. Harding! Then Cheswick goes and gets him a chair. Then Billy Bivitt goes, and then Scanlon, and then Fredrickson, and Seffeld. And then we all put down our mops and brooms and scouring rags. And we all go pull us chairs up. You men! Stop this! Stop! And we're all sitting there, lined up in front of that blanked-out TV set, watching the gray screen, just like we could see the baseball game clear as a day. And she's ranting and screaming behind us. If somebody'd come in and took a look, men watching a blank TV, a 50-year-old woman hollering and squealing at the back of their heads about discipline and order and recriminations. They'd have thought the whole place was a bunch of crazy loons. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if you're listening on podcast, please leave it a review. Five stars preferred, but, you know, you've got free will and do as you please. But five stars would be nice. It helps get this in front of as many people as possible. And if you really want to support the show, you can join the podcast by clicking the link below on both YouTube and podcasting platforms. It's the easiest way to support me. It's just like a little donation-y thing that you do, I think, once a month. And it just allows me to do this. That is the end of part one. We are officially, I hope this shows the right way in camera, on part two. And uh, I've read ahead a little bit. You can see I've got all my chapter marks. Ah, is that going to focus? Yes, I've got all my chapter marks. Yes, I fold my books. I am a monster, I know. Um, but uh, yeah, I've read ahead a bit and it's, uh, 
It gets g- real good. It gets real good. So please stick around for that. All right. Once again, thank you for listening. And until next time, bye-bye.